really the opportunities for what you can do with that data have changed. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number four, and today's guest is Tim Peterson. Tim is the Chief Marketing and Chief Digital Officer at SportsBiz. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Marketing Playbook with Mark Friedman. I'm joined today by Tim Peterson. Tim's the Chief Marketing and Chief Digital Officer of SportsBiz. Welcome, Tim. Well, thank you, Mark. It's great to be here today. I really appreciate uh, that you're joining me. Um, you know, Doing this podcast has uh, allowed me to uh, touch base with some folks that I, I knew uh, much uh, long time ago in my career. And um, I forget exactly. I, did you mention it was at Hanover Direct while I was there that we first came in contact? I think it's uh, approaching 20 years ago, uh, Mark, uh, while I was at Prefer Network and CMS Direct and you were at Hanover. So it's quite a while. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard Preferred Network. Um, I guess they were one of the earlier cooperative alliances along with Abacus and, and some of the others, right? Exactly. They were absorbed uh, eventually up into Merkle. Ah, okay. Gotcha. So that's how you got to Merkel. Now I got it. All right. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, to you, you know, we're hopeful that in this conversation, we're going to leave our listeners at the end with uh, three key takeaways they can bring back to their business from a marketing perspective, or they can just bring back into their everyday life and, and how they market their own brand. Uh, so, you know, perhaps you can give uh, the listeners uh, a perspective of your background, you know, how you, uh, where you got your start, and, and we'll uh, dive in from there. Absolutely. Yeah. I, great to be on here, by the way. I'm really uh, happy to join you. And uh, let, me, let me just dive in uh, telling you a little bit about my background. So I, I come at, you know, the world of e-commerce and digital uh, originally from a retail perspective. Uh, I was a retail salesperson and eventually a department manager, then a store manager, then a multi-unit store director. And I started my career at Bloomingdale's uh, back in 1980 as a teenager in, in uh, high school, excuse me. And that was great. I absolutely loved it. Had a wonderful, wonderful time. And over the years, I was a manager at Macy's, at Guest Jeans, at Pottery Barn, at Old Navy right after their founding. It really had a wonderful, wonderful ride. Simultaneous with that, I started a, a small business while I was in college. Um, turned out to be uh, an amazing experience as well. It was really a focus on desktop publishing because this is pre-internet. Uh, and I had a Apple Mac computer and I got an early laser printer for a very, very large sum of money. And I turned it into a business that lasted for about 10 years. So uh, that's where I began. <laughs> wow, that's, that's interesting. And in college, you went to Yale. And you, uh, we had uh, talked about that you were, your degree is in religious studies. So, you know, when you went to Yale and, um, you know, that was your, your major, what was, uh, what drove that particular interest? You know, I was originally uh, a science guy. I thought I was uh, tracking myself straight to med school. So I started off uh, taking 
biology and genetics and chemistry and physics and all these sorts of things and really enjoyed it. But then I realized it wasn't going to be my career and I decided to just take classes that were of interest to me. And I was really interested in the history of religion and philosophy of religion, and the psychology of religion. So I landed there. And uh, really the way I look back on it now is that having a, a really great, you know, wide ranging liberal arts education just prepared me for anything that I did in my career, you know, over the decades since. It was just a, a great way to kind of set the stage and be open uh, to learning uh, over time. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because the folks that I've talked to for the the podcast and and just in in, in speaking to others, so often what we study in school uh, is very very different than what we wind up doing in our careers. Yeah, uh, very very much so. I mean, I've uh, uh, I've had the pleasure of being a mentor in some uh, programs for you know business students at the undergraduate and at the uh, you know the business school level, and. Uh, they're often kind of surprised, uh, you know, that I wasn't really like a tech guy or a computer science guy or one of these things, because that's where my career led is into a lot of the tech that, uh, you know, we use today uh, to market uh, and sell. So it's really yeah. very interesting that I just started off with something completely different. Yeah. And that's, you know, not too different from me. I uh, started in uh, finance and accounting. I was an auditor for one of the big eight accounting firms. And some of our listeners are not going to know what that even means, big eight. But, um, you know, I did that and, and then moved into marketing, which was, you know, analytical in nature. But, you know, oftentimes I still uh, get asked the, asked the question, you know, geez, how did you make the move from, from finance into, uh, into marketing? But, um, you know, that's just a good point for people to realize that just because you're studying something doesn't mean that's ultimately where you're going to earn your living. Absolutely. So you, you talked a little bit about retail. Um, obviously, retail has changed quite a bit. Um, what did you learn about yourself and, and perhaps the customer and the way retail uh, worked back then? And, and now you know, go fast forward all these years. Is it the same? Is it different? You know, what, what's your sense? Uh, well, a couple things. Uh, one of the things uh, uh, that I think about to this day is uh, just that person to person, you know, human interaction and how important uh, it was to succeed you know, in retail, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and how important it is, you know, today to have a human real interaction, uh, no matter how you're selling products. So uh, I really feel that that's something that is a major takeaway for anyone. You know, physical retail is different. You know, of course, you're in person, you're facing someone, you're in a very intimate situation. But you know, that's what social spaces are like today. You're, you're very intimately involved in a community, you know, sharing all kinds of images and text and stories. It, it's very connected in a sense. You know, you're, you're talking personally in person or you're talking personally not in person, you know, mediated in some other way. So that's one major takeaway. And the second I would just put out there is that I really learned how to manage on the fly, I guess is a good way to put it you know, as a, a department manager and, uh, and on up, you know, retail, anything could happen, right? I, there, was, um, there was a time there was a, a tornado that happened. We had a tornado warning and I, I was the manager in charge of the Old Navy store when a tornado was approaching us. And I had to figure out what to do, you know, to protect everybody and to do the right thing. And, you know, that sounds crazy. Like, you know, oh my God, it's a tornado and we're in a retail store. But I feel like just being ready for anything 
you know, in that kind of situation prepared me to be ready for anything that happens, you know, online or outside of a retail situation over the years, always being calm and ready to handle something that might pop up. Right. And, you know, you, you read a lot about uh, retail is dead. And then, you know, I see, uh, you know, comments said, that say, you know, geez, it's really only that bad retail is dead. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, your comment about having, you know, customer service and experience is, is really important. Are there retailers out there that you see either as, you know, just simply as a consumer or in, in the work that you do that you feel like are really getting it and are in fact servicing the, the customers? Uh, yeah, there, there are. And, and I know there's always room to grow, you know, even with uh, stores that are doing relatively well. Uh, but, you know, I'm a big fan of places uh, like Bonobos, you know, they're, uh, everyone talks about them, you know, they kind of came at it from a very, very weird angle, you know, they still don't sell in their stores, yet it's an experience that makes you want to buy. I mean, it's very personal, they'll do, they'll spend as much time with you as possible to bring you into their online world and to get you their product. So that's kind of an example from, you know, an, an unusual angle. However, there are people who are just great at retail altogether. Uh, and I think one of those that I've been to recently is Jonathan Adler. You know, they're, they're, it's fascinating in a way that they're as good as they are because they never wanted to expand retail, their retail footprint in an enormous way. However, the experience is absolutely wonderful. The people who are there are so engaged. They're so excited about the product. They want to talk to you. They'll get you a cup of coffee and sit you down on a sofa and chat for a while. They'll ask how you found out about the brand. It really is remarkable. And then I would second uh, mention another company sort of in that same space, kind of the home space, uh, Restoration Hardware. You know, I was a manager at Pottery Barn many years ago when Gary Friedman was in charge of Pottery Barn, you know, part of the Williams-Sonoma companies. He left. He ended up taking over Restoration Hardware, turning it into what it is today. And boy, has he done a remarkable job. I mean, the the restaurants, the bars, the the catered, you know, events that happen in Restoration Hardware spaces, the very unusual, uh, you know, vibe and uh, unique feeling you get from their furniture and from their spaces. They've done a great job. They've carved out a whole story and a whole world that no one else really does. So those are just a couple. I mean, there are so many people I think are doing interesting things today or, or you know, moving forward in an interesting way. But I really like those uh, those two from recent uh, visits. Yeah, um, I agree with you on restoration. I, I was recently in their store in, in Palm Beach and uh, the restaurant was hopping and um, you know, it was such an expansive uh, place. They clearly do events. Um, it, it definitely was an experience and, and, and a lot different than what you see in a lot of other uh, home fashion stores. So let's, let's move a little bit. You know, you, you've characterized yourself a little bit as a data guy. Talk about, you know, the analytical side of your, your head, how you got into data, you know, what your, uh, you know, you talked about prefer network, you know, that was really all around uh, about data. W were you on the sales side at, at prefer or was it more on the analytical side? Uh, well, I'm glad you brought up uh, prefer because it really is a, a great uh, way to kind of set the stage for this. So, you know, prefer was, as you said, uh, one of the early, if not the first, uh, cooperative database uh, taking in consumer data 
uh, largely from catalog businesses at the time, retailers, and it was relatively early e-commerce era, right? So it's tons of, of purchasing data down to the item level for a transaction. Uh, I was one of the first five people uh, in Prefer, hired there uh, when it was a startup in 2000. Uh, I think there were about 70 people uh, after its uh, you know, final merging into uh, you know, Merkel. Uh, it was a really wonderful ride. I started off in um, client service and sales. I was really just working, you know, that those both sides of the coin, trying to bring clients in and trying to make sure they were happy. Uh, I did move over to the data side, though. I was, uh, I ended up being in charge of the cooperative database. Uh, I was their first uh, chief privacy officer. I tried to figure out really what we had to deal with, uh, you know, in order to bring the data in in the right way, mix it up in the right way, and then you know, work with all of the, uh, you know, the number crunchers, the data scientists, you know, the modelers, everybody who we needed to, to get things out that were useful to clients, whether there were lists or reports or what have you. So it was a great, you know, learning experience for me. Uh, and after that, I ended up going to uh, Nature's Bounty, uh, you know, the, the giant CPG player in vitamins and supplements. And I was their head of business intelligence, their first, uh, their first actually head of business intelligence. And so helped uh, really establish their approach there, uh, you know, really took it from there. So I ended up starting in a different place, learning a tremendous amount over a period of seven years at a, at a great startup, and then moved over to a much more established CPG player as a head of uh, BI, uh, and really have kept that data uh, in the background, let's say, for just about everything I've done since. I'm drawing a blank. I can see the the face of the the founder of Prefer. Who? What was his name? Platt. Doug Platt, Doug Platt and Sidney Herman. Doug, Those were the two Doug, founders. Doug Platt. That's it. As soon as you started, uh, I asked the question. I could think of his last name. Uh, boy, I haven't heard that in in a long time. So Doug uh, is yeah, that, happily in Italy right now. Happily uh, working and living in Italy uh, for for years, and uh, we we keep in touch a little bit still. He's a remarkable guy. Yeah, that's great. And and so, you know, data has changed in, in, in some ways, data has changed, I guess. And in some ways, it hasn't. Talk about that. What, what, what are you seeing that's different about the data we capture, how we use the data to help drive sales? Uh, well, a couple, couple very obvious things I think that people will just know, even if they're not deeply involved in data, is that there's a lot more of it than there used to be. I think that's a, a number one on the list. There's just so much of it. Number two is that it's coming from a lot of sources that didn't exist. You know, five years, ten years, twenty years ago, you know, you might have had a mailing list, you know, or, or a a file from a call center, or you know, a variety of things that are pretty understandable. And then product files and transaction histories that were pretty easy to wade through. Not today, it really could be anything. It could be transaction records, you know, that are contactless payment. You know, it could be, uh, you know, uh, different kinds of things that you're getting from, uh, uh, you know, how shipping is done, you know, what you're, how you're tracking a product and where it's coming from, where it's being delivered. The sourcing of products, people are very interested in understanding where materials are coming from and you're bringing that data into play. Uh, and of course, all of the social media, uh, all of the different things that you now have connected to a website, you know, and I'm putting that in quotes because it's much more than a site today. 
But really, the way it's changed um, is the, um, the amount of data, the number of the sources of data, and the new places that data is coming from. And then last, I would say, just again, a very surface level, level but big thing, is uh, really the opportunities for what you can do with that data have changed. Because there's so much more, and it's coming from more sources, you have a lot more people sitting there saying, well, what do we do with voice-activated ordering, you know, now that we have data on X, Y, and Z and how people behave, or what do we do with image recognition or sentiment monitoring or these categories that didn't exist uh, when I started in data 20 years ago. Yeah, lots of things have uh, changed in that 20 years. And and I know it's funny because when, when I was building, you know, databases back in, in some of the multi-title brands that I was in, you know, the, the tech guys would say, well, what do you want us to capture? And and I said, geez, I'm a marketing guy. I want you to capture everything. I don't know what I'm going to do <laughs> with it, but I want you to capture everything. And, you know, it feels like there's still a lot of that. Um, and that the real, you know, where the rubber meets the road is, you know, how do you take that data, organize it in a way that makes it management actionable? And I think that, you know, there's still a lot of struggle around that. Well, I, I think there is a lot of struggle around it. And, and look, the last couple businesses I've been involved in and, and some startups that I've advised are really in the middle of that. I mean, they are, you know, platforms, let's say, because, you know, that's a term that we like using today to you know, really make sense of all of the things we just talked about, you know, data from different sources and, you know, uh, vast amounts of it. So what do you do? You try to look for patterns in the data. You're, you're scoring, you're modeling, you're, you're saying, you know, green for go for anything that has these characteristics and yellow for caution for anything that has these characteristics and red for stop, you know, something's wrong for anything with these characteristics. So, you know, at, at VIA, uh, that's a lot of what we do is we try to bring in data for, you know, a bunch of different clients and, uh, and really see how we can simplify, you know, in a way and score and give the red, yellow, green. And it's very similar over at SportsBiz. You know, now that I'm CMO and Chief Digital Officer of this, you know, great startup, they, they're taking in sport-related data. But it's data that's almost, un, it's unheard of, I think, 10 or 15 years ago, how much of it there is. It's data on athletes, teams, leagues, associations, venues, and events, and all of these advertisers and sponsors connected to sports. And really, I think we have, I, I may be wrong in this exact number, but it's, I think it's like 200 sources of data, you know, that we're looking at, uh, you know, pulling in for uh, our work, uh, you know, at the SportsBiz uh, platform. It's just really remarkable. Yeah, I'll come back to the sports biz because I have a bunch of questions. As a sports person, a big sports guy, I have tons of questions about that and what you're doing. It just seems so sure. interesting. But I'll I'll come back to that. You know, one of the things that we've you know I've heard in just in the conversations with you, you you seem to be you know really flexible, really open to to new things and examining thing uh, new things. How important is that to you personally, and and should it be to people that are listening? Well, I'm going to tell our listeners, if they're taking notes, that they should put number one on their page and they should write down, be flexible. I think this is one of the key takeaways for me in my career, and I love passing this on to other people. You know, if I had been more set in my ways or followed a very safe path, I'm not sure exactly where I would be today. I mean, I had a very successful pre-internet 
desktop publishing business, you know, that was great, but mostly I was printing resumes on a laser printer. I was doing some graphic design and I made some annual reports and, you know, it had a certain life to it, but it was pre-internet, right? So I had to be open to what was going on. So as the you know, 90s, the, you know, went from the mid 90s to the late 90s and the world started to change, I said, well, wait a minute, what do I do and how do I fit in here? And I was still a retail boss in you know, a number of places. The last place I worked in retail was a, a, a home uh, store on Long Island called Peter Andrews. And I, I was their store director, three locations, a warehouse, all of stuff. But then it was late 90s. The internet was uh, becoming a thing. People were starting to look at selling there. And I got invited into a startup. And I decided to just take a leap and say, okay, you know, this may be the future. It may not but I've got this other experience and why don't I try to apply it? So I was very briefly at a startup called giftmenu.com. I was employee number one and it, the tech got sold, you know, very quickly uh, because it was great tech. But I said, well, wait a minute, do I go back to retail or do I go toward what I thought was the future? And from then that period on, I went to a lot of e-commerce and digital related roles, you know, over the years. So that's the flexibility piece here is that I really just said, you got to be open to new things. And I'm continue to be, I continue to be open. I want to know how voice activated ordering works. I want to know how sentiment monitoring works. All of these things that people talk about, I dig in there and I want to know. Well, when you figure it all out, we come back and be a guest and explain <laughs> it to everybody again. I would be happy to. <laughs> You've had quite a bit of, of consulting throughout your career. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting uh, that you've worked on are, you know, site evaluations and, and replatforming. And, you know, I've spent a bunch of time uh, running e-commerce businesses where we had to choose uh, a new e-commerce platform. You know, is it a build or buy? Talk a little bit about how um, you've seen the, the e-commerce platform space change, um, you know, perhaps over the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been very dramatic. I think that, and, and this is fair to say, I think about, about 10 years ago, even though, you know, the smartphone had been out, when did it come out? Like 10, 2008 or something like that, you know, the big revolution with the iPhone, you know, people weren't quite sure how e-commerce was going to work, you know, it connected to the birth of the smartphone, the iPhone. No one was really sure. So the platform, you know, back then was focused on, you know, optimizing for a desktop, you know, environment and for a limited number of browsers and for, you know, a very specific set of activities that people would do. And also you have to think about 10 years ago, well, what were the other options for search outside of, you know, Google and a couple other search engines? Really were there other options? And even though Amazon was existed and even though the iPhone existed 10 years ago, they didn't really factor, I think. I think it's a fair thing to say. They didn't factor very much into the success of an e-commerce site and how you would evaluate it and how you would platform it and whatnot. Today, you know, you, you keep leaping. I usually tell people that you have to think in like three-year chunks now, like three-year. You know, what is happening now versus, you know, what might be happening in three years. It's not the five-year window or the 10-year window anymore. It's really much tighter, you know, more like three. So when you think about it in those sorts of chunks, you know, you had 
the birth and the explosion of all of these different social media sites, which changed how we related to our phones, and then the idea of social selling, and then uh, the really the explosion of the marketplace on Amazon and people searching for product on Amazon as opposed to just searching on Google, all of these different things and more, you know, many more things, uh, you know, happen. So what happens with e-commerce today? I mean, e-commerce today has to, you know, factor in it's mobile, you know, first, if not only, because obviously for some players, or maybe not obviously for a listener, but some players really only look at mobile. And then if anything happens outside of it for their e-commerce, well, that's great, but they'll just focus on mobile. But really, that's how the world has changed. It's like you've gone in these leaps from a desktop world with a very limited way of viewing how things are going to work and be connected in and very limited options and players and factors to consider to today where it is an explosion of you know marketplaces and social selling and selling through things like whatsapp and uh, and tiktok and you know on and on and on it's just an extraordinary moment where you have to think of all of that when you're trying to sell online today yeah and, and and you know as i see more and more businesses i mean this is the the standard now you know we've got this conundrum you know you're a retailer you know your desktop conversion rate or your traffic you know may have been you know 50% maybe you were you know or 60% maybe you were 60% desktop and 40% mobile many businesses have now you know totally shifted around where more of their traffic is mobile the conversion rate is is almost always substantially lower on mobile rates or here you know, on mobile so now you've got this challenge of all this traffic, not really because you're doing anything, it's just organically moving. You've got all these conversion rates um, substantially lower on mobile, average order and transaction usually lower on mobile. So it's a, it's a real challenge for a lot of retailers. Well, let me just add one thing that again, you and the listeners might find a little interesting. I'm a big fan of retail and, and you know, commerce history. And uh, I had a discussion a while ago with somebody who's kind of an expert on Macy's and a few other big old time players. And uh, they had this analogy that I thought was great. I said, you know, when they built the massive Macy's Herald Square store in New York, and you know, that took years. It's, it's a gigantic, gigantic thing if people haven't been through it. And there were additions over decades, but you know, it's like a city block. It's an enormous place. But one of their big innovations was uh, introducing the escalator mm. into retail, right? And so what, what does that mean? So here's what, what happened. When they introduced the escalator, people were coming in at a higher rate and higher numbers to new places to shop, and they had to learn how to redo selling, right? I mean, so the analogy, of course, was this was very similar to, you know, moving from desktop to mobile selling to marketplaces and all of this because people are streaming in from a different angle from a different way they're getting to new product and different product and at that point of course there were just physical sellers you know on the floor but they had to reposition merchandise and reallocate time and all this sort of stuff in ways that are documented you know historians can look at this and say well what happened in selling in 1903 versus selling in 1904 when they added the escalators and things are very different. The same when they installed elevators in major department stores and, and whatnot. So it sounds almost silly, but really it's not new, you know, to have to be open to these changes and to figure things out. 
You just have to keep going with whatever the new tech is and whatever consumers are doing. Yeah, you talk about escalator in my mind, in Herald Square, my mind immediately goes to walking that store with my grandparents and the escalator going down from the main level to the cellar that they had mm -hmm. um, was made out of wood. The slats on the, on the, the escalator itself were wooden. They weren't steel. Um, and I remember always uh, wanting to go on there with my grandmother and, and the, 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 ben the benefit of going down to the cellar was where they sold the candy. Um, so that was a, a, always a fun experience. Well, that was a marketing ploy, by the way. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're aware of that history, it was a marketing ploy. They decided to put food down and, and to call it the cellar as opposed to calling it like the bargain basement or whatever, just put merchandise down there because people went up but didn't go down. Yeah. And so they reinvented that space and made it more exciting and made it a better experience. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could be the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. All right, so let's talk about sports biz. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I'm an interested uh, sports guy. Uh, I think what you're doing is uh, very um, intriguing. So tell, uh, tell us what uh, sports biz is all about. So sports biz is, is coming at a problem. So the founders of the company are a bunch of folks who've been involved in sports in one way or another for years, a sports agent. Uh, an owner of a NASCAR team, uh, someone who's the founder of a national lacrosse league, on and on. People involved in sports from one angle or another. The core problem that they identified uh, is that people don't really understand yet in sports how sponsorship dollars really work for the brand, right? How do they really work? Like, how are you understanding the return on the investment, the ROI of a multi-million dollar uh, you know, stadium namings rights deal? Or how are you understanding the value of a sponsorship of the U.S. Open for tennis, you know, where Chase has its logo, uh, you know, against the back, uh, uh, you know, of every view of every match, you know, they're right there. Or Ralph Lauren sponsoring uh, the Olympics, right? And again, providing uniforms at great expense. And, you know, so what happened is that people who are in the weeds with all of this, said, you know, we get some data, but we don't get a lot of data. And we get, you know, some insight, but we don't get a lot of insight. And given how much more data there is and how many more tools there are and how many ways uh, in which consumers, you know, connect today, how come in sports, there really is no great way to understand that $60 million that Procter & Gamble may have spent last year or $100 million it may have spent across all athletes teams, leagues, associations, or venues or events. I mean, how, how do you figure it out? So coming from that perspective, for the last year and a half, there's been a team of people pulling data sources together, signing agreements, and building a tool, you know, that's in the form of a platform that we're calling Deep Sport. And essentially the tool is focusing on areas like matching for matching athletes to brands, 
or you know, just taking things that are at a basic level and say, well, wait a minute, our data shows that of the 43,000 athletes we have in our database, because I think that's the number now, of the 43,000 athletes in the database, which of these are, uh, do we have verifiable data about what they're earning, how, you know, what they're doing for different brands, what categories of sponsorship they have, uh, you know, is it food, is it sneakers, is it travel, whatever. And then we work with other data and try to figure out, let's say, for Lexus, you know, for a car brand or for, as I said, like Procter & Gamble or for a bank like Chase, you know, what really makes sense for them? Where are the gaps? And we keep building and building, building this data. And then we've got teams of data scientists who have written proprietary algorithms to run through these large data sets to say, okay, when Serena Williams, is, you know, was playing versus Coco Goff or, or what have you in a match at the U.S. Open, then what was going on on social media at that time? Which of the sponsors, you know, uh, behind Serena were getting any traction right then, right? We can match the data minute by minute. What was being seen on screen when she won or, or when Coco won, right? Uh, how much, how much uh, time was the logo being seen on screen on which networks and for how long, right? On and on and on. So it's the layering of all of this data in ways that as an individual brand, an individual sponsor, they wouldn't have access to this. We're bringing it all together. We're getting, you know, these, are, uh, these clients in and we're saying, okay, now what are you doing and bring us your data and we're going to figure it all out together. The answer may be for some, they shouldn't be doing some things and they should look at other options, you know, and the answer for others is going to be, wow, you really hit the ball out of the park here. You know, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. <laughs> ball out of the park here, you know, with these sponsorships because it shows us that you've gained like, you know, 40 million or 50 million or $70 million in value from this $20 million investment. Right. That's basically what sports biz is up to right now. And so is, what's the revenue model for sports biz? Is this a is it a SaaS platform? Is it a con consultative kind of a business? It's a SaaS platform uh, with licenses that begin. And I think it's fair to say this. We're launching officially later this year, but it's a, it should be twenty four thousand a year is the base license model uh, is what we're looking at right now. And uh, there will be you know, custom modeling and different types of reports, you know, other things that we will be open to with our clients, but really we, it's a, meant to be a SaaS model, like a very rich platform with lots and lots of data. And, uh, you know, we're going to be fully engaged with each of these clients, anyone who is a sponsor of in sports, period. That's who we're looking for as clients. And that's really what the model is going to be. All right. So in, in some sense, you're not really disrupting because it doesn't sound like there's, you know, much out there already other than, you know, kind of each, I, I have this impression that you, each of the sponsors are evaluating pretty much, I, I guess, with some similarity, but they're all pulling data together differently. They're interpreting the data differently, right? You know, is there somebody else that's helping them in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the fair way to put this, because, you know, I try to be completely open about this, even though I'm, you know, an inside guy there. My view is that, you know, it is disruptive and I'll explain how. But I think part of the, the win is that there has been no one uh, that we can tell or that we're aware of. 
who has pulled together all of these sources of data and that it's not possible for each of these clients, each of these brands, who, whoever they are, to have pulled together the data themselves. So just the access to it all. Right now, what they have are multiple relationships with piecemeal, uh, piecemeal approaches uh, to pulling in the data and have, they have their internal teams trying to figure out how to make sense of it. So we're saying, why don't you stop that? Try this, we're pulling it all together. Uh, and we'll see if we can make this happen together and make it worth it. The way I'll just add this is the way we are disruptive is that there are angles to this that are unexpected, I think, to some. For example, you know, we're, we're looking at esports, right? And we're looking at the growth in sports betting now that that is legal. I mean, so a whole variety of things that a lot of these brands have not traditionally done or haven't explored yet, right? So we are pulling in that data in anticipation of them making major shifts, right? So you might've heard in the news, Atari, you know, the game, uh, you know, the game maker, very famous, been around for many, many years. You know, they're opening up a chain of hotels, right? So that's fascinating in its own way, but, but think about what's going to happen at those hotels. There are gonna be these exclusive games and competitions and, uh, you know, all different kinds of uh, uh, sponsorship opportunities now in a physical space that is not a stadium, right, B but is involved with esports, right? So it's a completely different angle that nobody uh, was, had the opportunity to be a part of until now, right? So you have esports, you have uh, a, a hotel, and you have all of these sponsors who are scratching their heads and saying, wait a minute, would this make any sense and how does it work? Well, we're trying to get ahead of that. That's how we're partially being uh, disruptive is saying, well, do this. You know, here's something completely different. Yeah, that's incredible. You said Atari. I thought asteroids. Uh, <laughs> that was, uh, there you go. That, that was the game. Yeah, that's all these old memories you're bringing back for me, uh, Tim. Uh, <laughs> wooden slats on escalators yep. and yep. asteroids and big eight accounting firms. That's crazy. <laughs> um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier um, Amazon marketplaces. Do you have a take on that, you know, being a, a, an old time retailer and, and how they have uh, obviously disrupted the way we, we do our shopping? Well, I, I'll, I'm coming at this from, again, like a lot of consumers from a couple different angles. First of all, I admit I am a fan of Amazon. Right? I just admit it. You know, and it's tough to admit that in some of the relationships I've had with clients in recent years because, you know, they're fighting against Amazon or it's something that, you know, is really fraught, you know, to use a, a crazy word. It's fraught. There's like this weird relationship there. But uh, the way I look at it is, you know, Amazon's not going anywhere, right? They're there. So we have to address it in a very sensible, real-life way. And for a lot of brands, that means you do need to be on Amazon and you do need to sell there. Doesn't mean you need to put, you know, 100% of everything that you do on Amazon. However, you need to have a presence. If people are searching there, you know, at a higher rate than they're searching on Google, and there is data that shows that depending on exactly what's being searched for and when, then that's something you have to contend with. So what does that mean? It means that you would have a shop on Amazon, you could work with other sellers and sell on Amazon, but maybe you have special flavors if you're a food or special formulations if you're a supplement or 
uh, you know, different uh, unique experiences if you also have a retail presence that bring people outside of the world of Amazon into your particular world, you have to have a value add, right? I, I think that's kind of the, the bottom line is that you got to recognize that Amazon is there, that they're not going away, that there may be a way to expand your reach and bring in that, that revenue, even with all of the other uh, expenses that are tied in with bringing like a, a major seller there. But it also means that you have to work very hard and having something unique and exciting happening outside of Amazon to attract people to you. And there are a lot of brands that do it well. I, I just, I've talked with a lot of people over the year, recent years who are able to pull that off. Yeah, unique and exciting. That's the uh, thing. And, and whether it's just in Amazon or marketplaces, even if it's in physical retail or online, uh, the unique and the innovative and the different things that help you to set yourself apart from others are really important. And, you know, frankly, I think that goes to just your own personal brand. You know, how do you set yourself apart um, from the tons of really talented people uh, that are out in the market? So uh, interesting points. So we're getting down to uh, almost the end of our time together. Um, as part of the marketing playbook in keeping with the, the theme here of, of sports, uh, we do something uh, at the end of each of the shows uh, called the two-minute drill, uh, where I'll ask a couple of questions, and actually it's seven questions, uh, and get your uh, you know, quick and dirty response. And um, if you're up for it, I'll, I'll start with the questions. I'm ready. I'm ready to go for it. Okay, so the first one is a brand that you would admire or that inspires you. Okay, I'm going to give you one that a lot of people haven't heard of, but uh, KD New York, not DKNY, but KDNY. Uh, they are a remarkable company that started off doing ballet wear. Uh, then they did yoga wear. They do a lot of quote-unquote athleisure. But their big breakaway right now is that they are doing vegetable cashmere. So it's fabric that is soft and resilient and washable and sustainable and and environmentally amazing and it's based on soy it's made of soy it's not made from goats so it's a type of cashmere that people should really check out and they have a wonderful line of products kd new york i love that brand interesting haven't heard of that one thank you uh what's the favorite app on your telephone you know this is this is one that bores some people but i'm going to say it for my own reason starbucks is my favorite app on my phone I probably have, you know, I have an iPhone like uh, many, many of you listening, and I probably have 10 screens worth of apps because I test all sorts of things out. But there's no app I use more than I use uh, Starbucks. And it also uh, continues to uh, surprise and delight me. I mean, it gives me different offers. It gives me, gives me different games. I'm always getting, you know, recommendations. I connect it to my Spotify and I'm downloading music. They've been able to create an experience for me that really works. And uh, it's amazing to me that they've done such an amazing job. You know, I use it to pay and I listen to music and all of these other things that I mentioned. So they've done a great job and I continue to applaud. Them. Great. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from. I shop a lot. I'm a crazy shopper. I do a, a lot of shopping, but uh, I was a target before Amazon. Uh, other than Amazon, the last uh, day or two, I bought some toys for kids. Uh, they were great prices, really wonderful stuff. Great selection. In fact, I think the Lego products were unique to Target as well. So I really enjoyed shopping with them. Something that you're not good at, but you wish that you were. You know, I have tried to be a singer. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to sing. 
And when I was in college, I, uh, I tried to be in singing groups and I tried to be in a band. I'm not a good singer, but I really enjoy trying. <laughs> so if you catch me at a karaoke bar, I will, I will attempt to sing, but I really wish I were a good singer. That would make me a lot happier. <laughs> All right, we'll press the mute button then. Uh, a charitable organization that you are passionate about. Uh, I am a longtime board member uh, and treasurer now of a, a group called Printed Matter. Printed Matter has been around for over 40 years. It's a New York City art charity. Uh, we help uh, young artists and mid-career and, and uh, any type of artists really create work that is widely available. Started off with printed work like zines and books and whatnot. But really, it is very wide ranging. Uh, we have amazing activities, amazing support in the art world. Uh, and we have two giant events every year in New York and LA that attract, uh, last year, the one in New York attracted 40,000 people to uh, MoMA's uh, Branch Out in Queens for our event. So we have a great time and uh, really love supporting art uh, and artists. Uh, it's printed matter. Good for you. If you had one superpower, what would it be? You know, that's, I love this. It's almost like an interview question too. I like saying all knowing, you know, I really like that idea because really I feel like it, it beats out so many other things. Like I could be strong, but maybe that's not the most important thing or I could be invisible, but then maybe that's not the most important thing. But if I'm all knowing, you know, I know everything that's going on. I could figure figure out anything I need to. So for me, the superpower would be uh, to be the, I guess, omniscient, I guess that's the word, you know, be an all-knowing being. Yep. And the last one, other than family, what's your most prized possession? Uh, really, we, my husband and I love art, and we have a lot of it, and we have really supported artists personally over the years and followed a lot of artists and movements, and it's been a lot of fun. You, you just can open up your eyes uh, in a new way about the world around you with the great art. Uh, so for me, uh, the prized possessions are kind of the art we have as a whole. Uh, but, you know, there are some individual pieces that are just absolutely amazing. We're so happy to have around us. But really, I would say art uh, is the most prized thing that I have outside of family. Well, this was uh, really great, Tim. You have such uh, a vast array of experience and wide interests. And you know, I think you've done exactly what we've, we've asked of our guests to be able to give you know, some takeaways that people can take back you know, into their businesses or use in their personal life. So uh, I, I really appreciate you being uh, with us. If people want to uh, reach out and, and connect with you, where can they find you on social media? Uh, it, it, it's on LinkedIn uh, is the best. It's Timothy J. Peterson. There are many, many Timothy Petersons, uh, many, many. So Timothy initial J. Peterson on LinkedIn uh, and that you will find me. That is the best way, uh, I think, to connect. Mark, it's been great talking with you here today. I've had a blast. I uh, really enjoyed this. All right. Well, thanks very much. We'll catch up uh, down the road. Appreciate it. You have a nice day. Thanks. You too. Take care. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Tim Peterson for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, data, data, data. There's more of it than ever before, but be judicious in what you collect. Be certain that you're not only capturing, but also giving your staff the tools to make the data management actionable. Number two, flexibility is critical, not only with your day-to-day -day work, but also in your career. Where you start is not always where you'll end. Be flexible enough to enjoy the ride. And number three, be positive. The right attitude can sometimes make up for a lack of knowledge. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. 
If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank <laughs> you.